Hello and welcome to Become an Educator, the podcast that aims to explore the secrets to great teaching in our classrooms. I'm Darren Leslie, and each week I discuss things that will hopefully make an impact in your school, with guests from classroom teachers to head teachers and everyone in between and beyond in the education sector. Hello, listeners of Becoming Educated. Thank you so much for your patience and support as I took a few weeks off to get my head around these teacher assess grades, marking and moderation. What a time to be alive and what a time to be a teacher. But it's close to the other end. And for us in Scotland, we're only a matter of a fortnight away from our summer holidays when we could put our feet up and finally relax after what has been hopefully a once in a lifetime term for us. Now, back to the podcast. This week I am joined by Joshua Valens. Josh is the National Lead of History for Oasis Academies and leads on curriculum at Oasis Academy Shirley Park. And if you're on Twitter and have read his blog, Mr Valens Teach, you'll have known that he's just published a, a fantastic series on curriculum thinking. So I asked Josh onto the podcast so that we can explore his thinking around curriculum. And in this podcast, I ask him about when he first became interested in curriculum and why he thinks it is the biggest lever for addressing educational inequality. We explore what is curriculum and why the school curriculum is what really matters. We unpick a key term in thinking about what is a knowledge-rich curriculum. We discuss why we want to make knowledge sticky. We discuss We also consider the origin of subjects and explore the ideas of substantive and disciplinary knowledge. Josh also um, shares the work of Claire Seeley and Neil Almond in in considering curriculum as a TV box set. We also uh, have a real think into why the sequence of things matters. And then we finish by talking about the core versus the hinterland where Josh shares with us why storytelling is such a powerful tool in the teacher arsenal. And Josh closes by recommending some reads and videos for those that wanted to explore this vast topic of curriculum further. So without further ado, let's dive right in and listen to my conversation with Josh Valance. Joining me on the Becoming Educated podcast today is Josh Valens. Josh, thanks so much for joining me today. How are you? Not at all. Yeah, I'm very well, thanks. How are you? I'm very, very well, thank you. I'm looking forward to to this discussion because, as I said off air, um, I really enjoyed reading your series of blogs on the curriculum. So we're going to unpack them today and and, um, tap into some of your wonderful thinking on that that will hopefully... Um, give the listeners a lot of food for thought. But before we do that, could you give us a little bit about you and a little bit of info about your career in education to date, please? Yeah, so I started teaching five years ago. Uh, I did teach first um, and was assigned to a school in Croydon. 
Um, I, I, I think my kind of early teaching experience um, ultimately ended up like shaping a lot of kind of where I'm at now. And I, I guess like actually it's, it's a bit of a roller coaster. So if you've got a minute, Darren, um, I'll dig in. But I, I arrived in a, in a school that, that was rated outstanding, but, um, but that I guess didn't feel outstanding. Um, and a department that, um, the history department that, that kind of had no real kind of organization or, or, or infrastructure, you know, um, I remember kind of asking a, um, asking a colleague, like, what, um, you know, what are we teaching next week? Um, I think that's something that you're going to plan. That was in my third week of teaching or something. Um, and like, I, I essentially like swiftly learned that there was no curriculum. Um, and that was like quite normal. Um, yeah, possibly quite normal in the school. Um, and so I, I had this kind of wild trainee year where I was planning all of my own lessons from scratch, um, kind of with a colleague friend. Um, you know, we were just kind of go very much going lesson to lesson. Um, and that's so like by virtue, there were many, many bad lessons. Um, and then uh, at the end of my trainee year, so after one year of Teach First, I was made head of history, which, um, which kind of was equally mad, right? Uh, because I had no idea what I was doing um, and, was, and was totally overwhelmed uh, and was in that role for two years. And I think, uh, I don't want to say like accomplished very little because maybe that is slightly hard on myself. And I, I think actually like what... Um, what we did manage to do in the department is, is bring a degree of organization. Uh, there were like lessons for everyone to teach. Um, and uh, kind of, there was some really brilliant people that I worked with, um, the, uh, some trainees that came through who, who I just think are, are, are totally amazing. I think we managed to build something of a culture and history in the school. Um, and results were so low that it, it wasn't necessarily that difficult to kind of add a, a 15% or so increase on, on grades, but we're still talking about really, really low pass rates. Um, and I think I just, I got quite jaded after three years and, and two years as head of department. Um, and I was kind of thinking, is this, is this what teaching is? Like, this is an incredibly stressful role where I, I seem to just be working day to day, um, like making loads of lessons that aren't very good and, um, you know, and everyone kind of like asking me questions that I don't really know the answer to. And it was, it was in a way a bit of a toxic situation. So um, I decided to leave teaching after my third year. And I, and I, I went to um, Amsterdam to do my master's, which was a history master's, um, which, was, which was great fun and really enjoyable. And, and I had um, kind of had one eye on, on doing a PhD out there and was very much kind of set on or not having a life out there and kind of going down the route of academia. Um, and then I just really started to miss teaching. And actually, like, weirdly enough, as, as bonkers as my school had been when I left, I started to really miss my school. Um, uh, and my colleague, Joe Robinson, got in, in touch and he said, look, there might be uh, an opening at the school for, for a lead prac role, um, teaching a bit of English, where there was a really strong curriculum in place, um, uh, and kind of teaching history, um, and I, you know, and come back with a fresh set of eyes and like, you know, just approach it as like learning lots. Um, and so, you know, I, I decided, yeah, okay, I, I'm going to go for that. 
I came back from Amsterdam and that was in the start of, that was in September. And have, I guess, had a really interesting academic year thereafter um, where I, I was kind of like swiftly again, kind of given a, a role that um, was like well beyond what I was capable of and, and given responsibility for designing curricula and the history curriculum across the trust. Um, and I just said to myself, like, uh, no more, no more screw ups this time. So, um, so I, 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 in a way, I, I, I kind of decided to totally immerse myself, you know, well, to a degree um, in, in curriculum theory, in curriculum design, and in the history subject community. So that was a lot of reading, teaching history, a lot of um, watching conferences that, that I should have been watching years ago, but was kind of only just catching up on. Um, and equally doing a lot of reading around curriculum because that was a, a whole school responsibility that I, I was starting to kind of, that I was starting to have. Um, I, and since then, I think my approach to the profession, my school and everything has like totally changed. And, and um, I'm in a very, very different position now uh, to, to where I was um, when I left. And, and I think um, I'm very, very, you know, I'm, once again, I'm really, really excited to be a teacher. And I think um, lots of that comes from uh, the like, relationship that I think I, I didn't have before, which is like the relationship between a teacher and their subject. Mm -hmm. and, and in a way, kind of, uh, for me, that is at the heart of, of teaching. Um, I'm a history teacher. I really love history as a subject. And I think the more that I've kind of progressed through this year, I've seen that actually like, you know, that, that, that should really be at the forefront of what I'm doing there for and kind of reading academic history uh, and working out how I can uh, communicate lots of these very difficult things to my classes and, and build really deep understanding across the curriculum um, is now something that I absolutely love. Um, and so kind of, you know, where I'm at now, so it's a very long and rambling answer, but where I'm at now is uh, I have my trust-wide uh, role, um, which I, I do with, uh, two brilliant colleagues Rob and Emma um, and we are implementing we're currently planning um, but implementing our new key stage three curriculum uh, in September across uh, Oasis schools and in my school I, I um, kind of lead and support on whole school curriculum so I've been with middle leaders this afternoon um, running some sessions on kind of you know what, what we can do with all of our game time this afternoon. Brilliant, a lovely story from that baptism of fight you start, you're, you're drawn off to academia and where you are now. And we're going to tap into some of that curriculum thinking and theory that you've that you've immersed yourself in and you've produced some wonderful blogs on that and, you're, and shared some of that thinking with the wider world. So the questions I've asked, I've taken from reading the blogs and hopefully they, they, they kind of follow some sort of narrative from your own thinking and your own writing that will help us make sense of, of such a complex topic with the listeners. So you've kind of alluded to already in, in that wonderful introduction, but when did you first become interested in curriculum and why do you think it is the single biggest lever for addressing educational inequality? Well, so when when Joe lured me back um, to school, he, he actually sent me... Um, he sent me Michael Young's Knowledge in the Future School. I remember, vividly remember it, like the sun shining in Amsterdam um, and like, lying on a park, just kind of reading it cover to cover. I had to read it a couple of times because it's kind of tricky to get your head around, especially if 
like me, you actually really had no understanding of curriculum. And like this time last year, I really had none. Um, so that was a spark. And I think um, for, for any of your, of your listeners or anyone that's, that's read that book, I think it's a really important book. Um, that, but that equally, I think um, we need to kind of uh, be like very critical with how we receive. And I think, um, you know, there, there, there's some like very interesting commentary in the history community at the moment around uh, how we approach Young's concept of powerful knowledge. I think that's incredibly exciting that, that there's a degree of criticality there. But for someone who really knew nothing about curriculum, it, it kind of was a bit of a light bulb um, in that, uh, you know, it, it suddenly started to make sense why, um, why my, you know, why my classes and my students just didn't really know as much as they had done in, you know, with their English teacher. And I was kind of like, you know, reading that book and, and thinking, well, look, my behavior management was strong. Like my pedagogy was strong. I was kind of felt like I was doing everything right. And it was just, you know, you, you, I read that book and it was immediately evident that um, the weakness wasn't really to do with me as like a, a teacher in the classroom. The weakness was to do with the curriculum that I designed. And that was the fault in the whole system. And, and as long as that was there, um, those children who entered my class, you know, I could have been the, the kind of like best um practitioner in in some regard they were they were capped and there's this really interesting um quote from Dylan William that, that comes to mind I think he writes it in in his book generating the schools we need where he says that the best curricula generate 25 percent more progress than than the worst irrespective of teacher quality and that kind of rang true because again as I said uh, this incredibly clever guy Richard Glegg who really knew curriculum um had designed a the history curriculum at my uh, the English curriculum at my school and you know it, it was just clear I'm not saying that like the teachers didn't matter the teachers played such an important role but it, but in a way it was clear that like there was something so much deeper going on there and um and I started I don't know like reading that book and kind of like drawing on those reflections I just started to think okay uh there's more to this here um and in terms of like your question around inequality um I, I, I think that kind of, you know, it's a, it's a really tricky one, but I just think, you know, children who have arrived at secondary school at an immense disadvantage um, actually, like, you know, deserve access to, uh, I hate that term, the very best that's been thought and said, but they deserve access to like a really rich academic, rigorous set of material that allows them to, um, you know, in a way bridge the gap, but, you know, kind of um, really move through the stages of their education uh, and arrive at the point where, the, you know, where, where, where they're in sixth form and they have every option on the table. And I think that's a curricular matter. Like, that's not to do with Rosenshine. Um, like Christine Council talks about you can't Rosenshine your way into a good curriculum. I think it's really interesting. Like there's a lot of stuff that um, I think was happening in my school when I was there for those first three years that, you know, kind of teach this way, do this, do this. I think that is all really helpful. But it was, yeah, so something was missing. Like, as I said, children were capped when they came into my class. And, and that's a bigger problem uh, to my mind when we're working in disadvantaged contexts. Um, no, I certainly agree. I love I, myself. I love that quote from Christine Council about Rosenstein. Yeah, it's a good one. The way, and I remember, I think I, it was also, and I think it was, might have been a Dylan William talk about creating schools we need, where he spoke about the difference in, in teacher quality, where you can actually narrow that gap 
with a really strong curriculum. And I found that, yeah. that really fascinating. So can I then ask you, Josh, what is the curriculum and why is the school curriculum that you say in, in your blog what really matters? Um, yeah, I mean, so I'm, I'm going to get ahead of this in terms of um, the blog and, and, and say that lots of that stuff in that blog is it's really what I try to do with that blog series is just bring together lots of the very good things that other people have said. So there's not really much that's original there. Um, what I mean, I, I kind of thought that I was like writing a blog series that I really wish someone had given to me when I was that struggling head of history. Um, and so therefore it's like, it's at a low level and then I'm not kind of pushing the boundaries of curricular thought in any, in any way. It's actually kind of like looking at some of the stuff that other people wrote and saying, okay, can, can I like actually just possibly bring this down a slight notch? Um, because, um, because possibly that's what I would have needed in, in my second year of teaching when I first became a head of department. So in that regard, I used to think the curriculum was the timetable. I mean, I used to think that the curriculum was, you know, the, the national curriculum with these bullet points. And, um, and, and, I, and I, I guess I wonder and I worry whether that, um, I doubt it, but whether that feeling is still pervasive in certain, um, certain schools. Um, and so therefore, kind of what is the curriculum? Well, I, I really like Christine Council's idea of the curriculum as knowledge or content structured as narrative over time. I think that's really helpful because the curriculum is this very carefully interwoven sequence of, of, of units of work. Um, uh, Neil Armand and Claire Seeley both talk in the Research Ed Curriculum book about the curriculum as a TV box set. I think it's actually a really easy analogy for us because if we imagine um, a, a TV box set like The Simpsons, which was my old curriculum, there are like these really nice little units of work which kind of you know, work by themselves. I think Simpsons episode works by itself, but there's no sense that anything's building over time uh, comparative to something like Breaking Bad where knowledge is built um, progressively over time and we see lots of different themes creeping in. Um, there's this process of echoing and foreshadowing, which is really interesting. Um, so, so curriculum is, is kind of what we teach, but it's also, um, and that's really at a basic level, but we also need to think about it as uh, like a, a very kind of complex, never ending right, process of development uh, where we're paying very close attention to the knowledge that's being built over time. And we're talking about years here. Mm. And, I, and I think that that was like a kind of a turning point for me as well um, in that I think you can plan these really brilliant schemes of work and I kind of think back, yeah, there, there were probably some quite good inquiries that I planned as a history teacher. But unless they are tethered to other schemes of work, unless there's a really careful process in which you are dropping things in to later pick them back up, in which you're enriching concepts by like kind of numerous encounters with them, unless that's happening, um, we just have like a collection of things uh, as, a, as opposed to a curriculum that is a narrative that is taking us on a journey of some kind i like that comparison of the of the tv back box sets and neil Armand talks about that and the, the curriculum book and i've heard him speak about that compared yeah. to drones as you said where that's there's bits you know it's like um if you watch line of duty the most recent recent line of duty if you actually go back and watch them the i can't remember the, the guy the 
oh, what was he called again? Can't remember the name of the guy they pinned it in the end, but he actually creeps up all the way through it. Yeah. Paying attention, you can't get it. So it's great that this kind of progressive narrative that you're talking about there. Um, something that gets a lot of airtime just now um, is this idea of knowledge rich. So can you share with us um, what is a knowledge rich curriculum? Mm, um, it does get a lot of airtime. Um, I, I worry about how much airtime it gets um, because it's not a collection of knowledge organisers. <laughs> um, and I guess I kind of worry sometimes that, that, that like, yeah, that, that the knowledge turn has um, has faltered possibly. And, and I think there's, there's possibly, and, and understandable in a way, there's like a desperation among senior leaders to, um, to kind of like neatly define what it is that a knowledge-rich curriculum kind of can be, uh, and then kind of sort that out in some system that everyone can, can, can you know, turn their curriculum into. And I think that's really problematic. And I, I think, you know, what would I say a knowledge-rich curriculum is? It's, it's a curriculum where um, I, I think whoever it is that's designed it has thought very, very carefully and paid very close attention to the specific knowledge that all students will learn and will leave with. And they paid very close attention to the building of that knowledge over time so that everyone who's teaching it and therefore everyone who is learning that curriculum knows exactly kind of where they're at in the journey uh, and, and from a teacher standpoint, kind of what is coming next and what has to be understood before we can move on. Um, I think it's very, very different to um, a curriculum in which there's a lot that's left up to chance. And uh, maybe that's a, a kind of way to think about it um, where, you know, children are possibly kind of doing a lot more kind of exploratory learning. Um, and we don't necessarily have very clearly specified end outcomes of units of work that, that we would like children to get towards. And we don't have very clearly specified core knowledge. And so ultimately what you end up is 180 kids in a year group all knowing slightly different things. Um, and instead what you want is kind of all children in a year group having a really firm foundation of knowledge so they can begin to think in, in more critical ways about that knowledge that they have. Um, and again, I, I think something I wrote about in my blog was, was a, a post by, by Willingham where he talks about Sherlock Holmes and, and the idea of um, that critical thinking. And, you know, critical thinking is just this abstract, it's this abstract thing. And, you know, Willingham says, well, no, actually critical thinking is based on shed loads of knowledge. And when Sherlock Holmes is going in and doing his thing, right, he's kind of like looking at the clues or, or, or whatever it is. And I think it's that Benedict Cumberbatch in Sherlock where he can introduce his things in a minute. Like, ah, and then this is, this is who you are or something. Um, actually, there's like so much knowledge going on. There. Someone's, he's like a critical thinker. That is, you know, you can't just be a critical thinker. It's, it, it all takes place on a really firm bedrock of knowledge. Um, and again, I, I think... Um, I, I think we need to be really careful with how we think about knowledge in the curriculum. Um, you know, if we are going to say that our curriculum is knowledge rich, where well, it also then dictates that we need to really carefully engage with uh, our subject communities and understand that, um, that this is an entire exercise in power now and that we are kind of cultivating something that you know, all students are going to leave with. So therefore, you know, what is it? And, and we have a real responsibility, I'm thinking particularly in history, 
um, to think about the story that we are telling. I think that's kind of like one possible fear that I have with knowledge rich curricula that, you know, if done wrong, what knowledge is it that these students are leaving with? And then the second fear, as I said, is that um, like many kind of great initiatives and good things, there's a fear of mutilation and there's a fear that it gets reduced to a knowledge organizer. And uh, without wishing to reference my own kind of failings as a head of history, too many times it like it was the production of loads and loads of knowledge organizers in my school where that kind of let people think oh yeah, well, we're knowledge rich we've done a knowledge rich curriculum it's like no we haven't we just made a load of knowledge organizers that took absolutely ages but they're, they're not tethered to a really strong curriculum that pays very close attention to the building of knowledge so actually we're not knowledge rich we are just a poor curriculum with a load of knowledge organizers um and i i, I worry that kind of yeah these these like initiatives, if handled poorly and people, and, you know, without people developing a real understanding of curriculum, um, that ultimately we replace a strong curriculum with proxies like knowledge organisers, and that's a slightly scary thought. So, just thanks for thanks for that. Um, so much things to consider there with the the idea of, of knowledge rich. And I like what you said there about it being an exercise in, in power, um, because there's lots of a deep thinking that needs to be done when we we plan a curriculum because it, it the question we, that I always get asked a lot of time is is what knowledge and, and whose knowledge is it and so on and I think that's where Michael Young's work really comes into it mm. um, but as we move move on um, I want to ask you why people need to remember what we, we teach them so why do we want to make the knowledge sticky yeah I, this kind of idea of of sticky knowledge i mean really in in a way that kind of links to the pedagogical approaches that we choose to go down but i think um obviously there's lots of work that's come out recently on on schema and and the building of schema and really kind of viewing viewing the curriculum and viewing your teaching as like the constant building of schema these big webs of association in students minds and you know we, we know from uh, some great studies in in cognitive psychology that <clears throat> we learn things better in the context of things we already know. And I think that then has really important curricular implications, uh, particularly if we're thinking about knowledge, right? Because actually, all of a sudden, we can start to say, "Oh, okay, this um, this yeah, you know, let's take the papacy as a as a concept, for instance." Um, you know, my 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 year sevens will first encounter the papacy right off the bat, uh, and the pope as as we have our unit on medieval Constantinople and they'll have various encounters with the Pope and the papacy and all the while um, you know I'm able to assimilate new information around the papacy uh, into these kind of like frameworks of knowledge they already have this this schema Um, and you know I I can really kind of complexify and diversify my students understanding of that Um, if I'm being very deliberate in linking new knowledge to old knowledge to prior learning and so therefore you know I might arrive at a situation where at the end of year seven my my students who are studying uh Elizabethan England um they 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 see of and hear of Elizabeth's excommunication and they sense though because they have this like you know rich schema this really rich framework of knowledge around uh, the papacy they sense that you know this doesn't carry as much weight the, the, the role of the papacy and the kind of status of the papacy 
has declined and diluted somewhat over the centuries. It's very different to um, you know when we first encountered the papacy uh, in our little medieval study of Conk. Um, and I think uh, that idea of of sticky knowledge. Um, I, 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 from a history, I'm not kind of confident enough to talk about other subjects, but from a history standpoint, I think um, it's very worthwhile thinking about your uh, substantive concepts, the, the substantive knowledge you are trying to build um, and kind of pinpointing where students are going to have these regular uh, encounters uh, with this stuff, with, with knowledge in transferable settings. And I think the more we do that, the more we create the climate in which new knowledge can be very easily assimilated and therefore more sticky. Certainly, I love the idea of being assimilated, but I like what you, the anecdote there you gave of the papacy and how that kind of theme can pop back up again. And that's kind of, kind of basically what you were talking about earlier on with this planned curriculum over time. You know that when you're teaching it first off and you give them the story around that it's going to creep back up again and again and again and if that knowledge is remembered it's going to really I think you said it earlier on tell the the was it the Christine Council quote about the curriculum really a narrative told over yeah exactly exactly and and you know I think I, just, I like it, if you're not sure about where your curriculum is going um then then you kind of lose sight of the power that you have in those little moments at the start. And actually it's a really important thing that I can do. It's not gonna take me long because he's not really the central figure of this unit of work, but it's an important thing for me to do to set the Pope up as a really significant figure. Um, you know, and in the case of our study at Conk, it's the fact that um, the monks are kind of like prepared to, uh, to, to that possibly lie and say that they've received a relic and that they attribute a relic to the Pope and yet there's no kind of other source material that validates this claim. Um, and so you're like, okay, well, why are they doing that? Well, clearly they want some kind of validation and in a unit of work about wider Latin Christendom, um, that's a really important kind of bit of learning that the Pope is a central figure. And, you know, if I know that ultimately down the line, um, uh, that that understanding is is going to change. I think uh, it gives me real purpose at the start because I can set the Pope up as as uh, kind of this central, unquestionably uh, powerful figure who, who you wouldn't dream of challenging. Uh, and then you know when ultimately the challenges do come, uh, there's more weight to those moments. And I think that's really exciting. And I think if we have an understanding of the interplay between knowledge and our curriculum. Um, we might consider that to be, as I was talking about earlier, this process of echoing and foreshadowing. Um, you know, then then it gives us much more purpose and agency with our our teaching episodes. Certainly did, and it certainly helps. She also mentioned the idea that um, ch what children learn is built on what they already know, and and that really helps with that if it's well planned and, and meaningful. And you mentioned a term there that we're going to kind of dive into a little bit, this idea of substantive knowledge and dis disciplinary knowledge. And you wrote some really interesting things about why we should consider the origin of subjects. So why is it useful for us to consider the origin of the subjects that we teach? Yeah, uh, again, I'll, I'll get ahead here and say that um, none of this is original. This is, this is just um, brilliant work that I've read that, that were these kind of like light bulb moments for me. Um, that I thought were worth uh, kind of bringing into a single piece. So in this case, it's 
Ruth Ashby writing about the origins of school subjects and, and the links to academic disciplines. Now, I'd always found this, this idea of substantive and disciplinary knowledge. I remember you know, first reading about it in Young, this idea that like, you know, not only are you trying to have them learn stuff, they also need to see how knowledge was formed. And I was just thinking, well, how on earth am I gonna do that? What on earth does he mean? Um, and I, I think, yeah, of course you start to you know, gain an understanding of what we mean by these terms and, and you know, substantive being the facts, um, disciplinary being kind of like the way that these truths came about. But when you start to then like look at them within each subject and, and, and attach them to each academic discipline, you start to just gain a much clearer understanding of actually what we're talking about. So um, disciplinary knowledge and history is, you know, it's what academic historians are doing. Um, and so therefore you start to say, okay, well actually, you know, they are using evidence to, to piece together arguments about the past um, that are generally kind of rooted in these big uh, second order concepts uh, like causation and change and continuity. And so therefore, um, I can very clearly start to see, uh, okay, I, I, this isn't only about building substantive knowledge, um, not that it kind of ever was in history, it's, it's a, it has always been a bit clearer in some ways. You know, I, of course, my students need to know um, details about medieval Constantinople, but given that there's a disciplinary lens here, which is similarity and difference, they also need to, to, to start thinking about how they talk about Constantinople, about challenging generalizations about this city. Um, and, and that, you know, seeing that thread from what is happening at, at an academic level um, and the classroom can be really powerful because you then start to say, OK, well, well let's have a look at some other subjects. And let's take maths, for instance. And I guess I, now that I'm in a whole school role, I, I have a different relationship with some other subjects. And I have to start to, you know, think about uh, line management and things like that. Uh, you know, if we took maths, um, okay, what are mathematicians doing at an academic level at a disciplinary level well they are you know, probing and inquiring and researching it and I don't want my I don't want my students to do that um, I'd need them to know a shed load of substantive knowledge before they can even dream of doing that in some ways um, and so in that sense you know I sometimes think that, that math is actually more like learning a language you, you know you have to learn all of these rules um, in order to you know, ultimately kind of uh, progress and, and really do something with it. And so um, I think, again, I just worry about mutations. I think be very wary of the of the senior leader who possibly suggests that uh, every curriculum map somewhere must have a list of substantive and disciplinary knowledge, because actually, you know, in some subjects, um, it, it really is very closely tethered to what we do, like history. And then in other subjects, um, like Matt, it, it really isn't and it shouldn't. And um, uh, and I think, yeah, being very clear about um, the disciplines helps us see uh, kind of what level of disciplinary knowledge should really be entering our classroom. I found that a really helpful thing. And it was Ruth Ashby that wrote about that. And I would, I'll plug her book here, actually. I would encourage everyone to, to read her new book, Curriculum, um, which is brilliant and helps a lot for anyone thinking uh, about kind of how to get to know a subject outside of their specialism. And definitely, especially for, for school leaders when they have to, to lead a number of activities. And since yeah. Yeah, the, that difference between disciplinary and substantive knowledge. So can I, can I, can I suppose challenge you there? What is the, for someone new to this, what is the main difference between disciplinary and substantive knowledge? Is disciplinary knowledge just simply the knowledge of, as you mentioned there, what historians and mathematicians and scientists do 
at the level of being a historian and a scientist in the substantive knowledge, just the knowledge that we want to teach the children that would allow them over time, once they have this deep fluent knowledge to be historians. Scientists. So not, yeah, not, I'd say not quite. Um, the substantive knowledge, it, you know, we can think of that as, as kind of uh, truth within a particular field. So that's that in a way is quite complicated, but you know, let's take history, for instance, we're, we're talking dates, we're talking, uh, you know, people, events, what what happened, the stuff that um, that kind of like we know to be true in some ways. Uh, and then the disciplinary is, you know, well, how did this truth, how did this meaning come about? Um, and that's the process of kind of historical inquiry and um, uh, and kind of historical argumentation. Um, and so, you know, let's let's kind of take uh, another example, you know, another example if, if we think like in the sciences um you know meaning is made like you know that th there are things we know to be true as far as we can can say almost for certain and meaning is made via this process of experimentation and that's how we know that these things um are, are kind of fact as it were and that fact that you know that substance that's the substantive knowledge and that process by which meaning is made is, is the disciplinary and i think you know, therefore, in science, that experimentation um, and kind of the, the changing of variables, that, that is disciplinary knowledge because that's how meaning is made in, in science and through science experimentation. In history, the, the kind of, um, as I said, that the process of inquiry, the use of source material, the um, lens kind of which you apply to that in order to make your argument, that is disciplinary knowledge and that's how uh, meaning is made in history, for instance. Thank you so much. And it brings me back to this kind of talking about the, the sequence of things. So we've spoken a little bit about this progressive narrative that you, you mentioned some terms, I think it's echoing and foreshadowing as we work through. And we've already spoken about earlier on about um, the work of Claire Seeley and Neil Almond in terms of thinking about the curriculum as a TV box set. Yeah. Can I ask you, Josh, why does the, the sequence of things matter? Yeah, so um, sequencing is a really interesting one. Um, you know, I, in a way, sequenced my old history curriculum well because it was chronological. Um, so, you know, possibly I, I could have said, okay, that, you know, that was good sequencing. I think, you know, we need to understand it as more than that. And Michael Fordham um, has written about this and, and he talks about this idea of knowledge um, that is independently necessary to access a kind of another piece of knowledge. Um, and, you know, so therefore we're talking, you know, if a student is studying maths, and again, I don't, I, I'm not a mathematician, so I, I can't stray too far into my maths examples, but I'll, I'll give it a go. But if a student is studying maths, right, and um, we're on Pythagoras' theorem, there's a, there's a fair amount of independently necessary knowledge, stuff they have to know before they study Pythagoras' theorem in order to be able to do Pythagoras' theorem. Uh, we're talking, you know, they have to know about triangles, a bit of geometry. They have to know some, some like basic uh, algebra, some basic stuff around equations. And they are all, um, you know, therefore, things that have to come before. And so if you think of like maths as quite a vertically structured subject where there are like, you, know, you have to know X before you can do Y, uh, before you can do Z, et cetera, then 
that that I think is that one way to, to consider sequencing. But Fordham also talks about this idea of collective sufficiency. So this idea that actually, um, or kind of cumulative sufficiency, sorry. But actually, you know, there's a, in history, for instance, there's a whole host of things that students can know. There's not one kind of predefined thing in most cases that means students can access this, this next thing. Uh, there are lots and lots of different avenues you can go down, lots of pieces of content you can piece together. Uh, if I wanted students to access idea D, for instance, I could teach ABC beforehand, or I could teach uh, kind of DEF beforehand. Or like some combination of the two. Um, sorry, I shouldn't have used D twice. That was confusing. But uh, I think you see what I mean, right? That that um, sequencing is the order of things. But sometimes the order of things is is about I have to teach this one thing before this. Otherwise, they can't do this. And sometimes it's actually well, what can I put before I teach this? What combination of things can I put before I teach this? That's going to change the way that they encounter this. You know, maybe maybe it's it's easier to think about with with text in English. Um, like a, an English curriculum that, that teaches the Northern Lights in, uh, in year seven, if you think, what do I need to do beforehand? What's the sequencing that needs to happen in order to really change the way that they're encountering the Northern Lights? So I, I want them to kind of explore Lyra Balakwa as this rebellious figure um, who kind of rebels against class and confinement. Um, but is also kind of innately vulnerable and, and is reliant on others in so many ways and certainly reliant on the supernatural. You think, okay, well, you know, what are the things that can come beforehand? Right, well, you know, we can encounter that idea of innocence and experience in William Blake and we can come back to that in Oliver Twist and that's really going to help us understand Lyra and, and, and this entire narrative. And, okay, what other things? And I think, yeah, thinking about what happens before you teach a particular unit that changes the way that they encounter that unit. Um, if you will allow me one more example, Darren, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm waffling on now, but um, I remember teaching a unit of work in my old curriculum on, on the Crusades. And actually, it was a really good unit of work. It was something that Rachel Foster had written in Teaching History. And we kind of just like, copied it because we, um, yeah, well, A, we didn't know what we were doing. And actually, like, you know, that's not even a bad idea necessarily at the worst of time. Uh, she's great. Um, and it was great and she's made lots of progress within that unit, but we absolutely found that we were having to do a great deal of work before students could really get stuck in. And we were, we, you know, we were struggling to get to the narrative of the crusade because actually, okay, well, you know, okay, let's talk about Constantinople. Let's talk about, uh, kind of, um, Muslim divisions in the Holy Land. Okay, right, we're going to need to talk about pilgrimage. Okay, cool, we're going to need to talk about the remission of sins. And all of this stuff um, is ultimately distracts from, from what they're trying to do, which is, which is answer a question, how on earth have the Crusaders made it all the way into Jerusalem? And so therefore, now we still teach a, a unit of work on the Crusades, but what's happened before, the sequencing, the order of things, is going to change the way that we encounter that. So we have three kind of interlocking units of work um, at the start of year seven that, that, that go through, that kind of try to build various worlds for our students. And that's an idea um, of a brilliant history teacher, Mike Hill. And so we have our students encounter Constantinople. We have them look at uh, the two wonderful cities of Baghdad and Cordoba. And, and they understand that there is a, a kind of... Um, 
a, a kind of division within the Muslim world. And they understand in Constantinople that Christianity has developed in a slightly different way. And they understand in Latin Christendom, the third of those units, that religion is, is this kind of centrally motivating force. And so now by the time that we get to that crusade unit of work, well, you know, there are so many things that make sense in our students' minds now. Of course, they're motivated by religion to go. Of course, that it kind of um, propels people to travel. And of course, when they get to Constantinople, they don't receive the same level of help and support as they might have kind of wanted. And of course, actually, they, they find their way into the Holy Land and they find not as much resistance as we might have, have kind of uh, envisaged. And actually, we know that's because there are these internal divisions uh, in the Islamic world at that time. And so therefore, all of that really helps them do what they're there to do, which is say, how on earth have the Crusaders made it all the way into Jerusalem? That process of, of, of things happening before we get to that unit of work is so powerful. I think that's, that's about more than sequencing. That's about the curriculum at large. The sequencing plays an important role in that. You know, saying kind of, why am I teaching this in this place? And what needs to happen before to make that possible? I think that those are really powerful little curricular conversations. Definitely requires a lot of a deep thinking there, but I love that anecdote you've just shared. You know, that's clear thought being put into the order of what you teach and, and what knowledge you're building, so that when you get to a certain point, they can apply all their prior knowledge to make that learning become easier. And you talk about schema building and knowledge being sticky. By the time they've got there, it's they're building on their schema, and it's yeah, exactly access that, and it's just making the whole thing come to life, if you like, um, a little bit. And it brings me on to talk about this idea of core versus hinterland. And and a quote I've taken um, from one of the blogs is, uh, I don't know if it's fr uh, from yourself or from someone else, you can please correct me, is that the hinterland is a life-sustaining context that feeds the core. And with that, how can we best think about the hinterland? Yeah, I, I think there are two ways well there are many ways you can you can kind of think about the relationship between core and hinterland and this is a a kind of way of thinking about um curricular content that, that christine council has uh has kind of very much led on um and, you know if, if i'm going to say at a really basic level the, the core of the kind of propositions that we want our students to remember the hinterland or the, you know, the extra knowledge that coats that core and gives meaning to it i think there are there are kind of a few ways to think about that um, first of all, if we were to kind of just reduce the curriculum to the communication of core propositions, um, you know, teaching these stock phrases and having students memorize those stock phrases, there's no real substance or weight behind them. They, they remain kind of quite shallow. And, and although like students might be able to, to, to use them in their writing, you know, they, they don't understand it and they, and, and they certainly don't, um, they certainly can't use this information transferably. I think the, the hinterland is a really important kind of idea because we're talking about extra knowledge in our class that might have once kind of be seen as clutter um, that helps give meaning to that core. And in some cases, I think actually helps reveal the core. So, so I often tell a story. Um, I, I, I'm going to go back to that unit of work on Cordoba and Baghdad. Um, that unit of work is entirely dependent on setting up those two cities as very different. Because ultimately we're going to ask what connected them and setting them up as different and then adding layers of complexity as, as we say, actually, you know, um, they're more similar than we think. 
uh, is a really important thing for, for, for that unit of work to do. So I have to set them up as different. I have to set them up as fierce political rivals. But if I were to reduce the teaching of, of that to just, oh, they were, you know, the Abbasids and the Umayyads were fierce political rivals, um, and maybe have my students you know, internalize that, repeat it, and remember it, that is a shallow piece of knowledge. Uh, and instead, you know, where the, where the hinterland can, can help support us is um, I tell a story. And I think the hint, you know, often a very like, interesting way to think about the hinterland are, are the stories that, uh, that kind of make it into our classroom. And I tell a story of Prince Rahman fleeing Syria as he's chased by these Abbasid horsemen who are waving the black flag of the Abbasids. And he crosses the Euphrates. And as in this kind of like desperate bid to escape Syria um, after the Abbasid revolution, uh, he's, he's crossing the Euphrates and he's with his brother and his brother turns back. And as Rahman gets to the side of the Euphrates, he turns around and he sees his brother's head held aloft. Uh, and he eventually kind of flees across northern Africa to Morocco and arrives in Spain and sets up this new life for himself um, before kind of uh, it, eventually the Abbasids send some, some more black flag waving horsemen to kind of uh, try and really rid themselves of the Umayyads once and for all. And, and Rahman is able to defeat them uh, and he sends in this deliciously ironic turn, he sends the head um, of the Abbasid general back to um, Baghdad. Uh, yeah, and so in, in so many ways there, I, I think it's something quite interesting that happened. This story doesn't take me long to tell, and I, of course, tell it far better than I did just then. But um, I arrived back at that same core proposition, don't I, that the, the Abbasids and the Umayyads were, were political rivals. I'm back at, at that same point. But I'm there, in, you know, it's very different to had I just said, let's remember this, remember this, remember this. There's a weight behind that now deep knowledge there and I really think things like the black flags waving in the wind uh, and these kind of beheaded parties um, you know and his blistered feet as he's crossing North Africa they are important things for us uh, because even though this is this is a story of kind of like macro politics and and dynastic tension and rivalry um, actually you know th there are um, like those those kind of like micro details uh, serve a really important function. And, and again, just to reference Mike Hill, they, they invite us into this world and, and we start to kind of like see and feel uh, kind of alongside Raman, um, uh, yeah, what is happening and, and the way and uh, that he's responding to things and why he's responding in the way he does. So I think just, just to come back to what you said about core and hinterland, I think um, a message would be that, that uh, and something that I have certainly found quite helpful is um, you know, don't be afraid to have the, this extra information enter your class. As long as you've got a very clear curricular goal, as long as you're, you're doing this for a reason and you know what that reason is and, it's, and possibly it's linked to the communication of core knowledge, then that hinterland is providing really necessary context that, that the core needs to survive and, and deepen. Um, yeah, and I, and I think that the key message there being uh, kind of a, a really clear curricular function is, of course, very important. Uh, so what does that then mean for a practice then? You're, uh, does this come into like the, what Daniel William talks about in, in the privileged status of stories? Does that, do these stories well, well delivered and, and well managed, do they really complement the core and really help deepen students' knowledge? Um, so... 
I think stories are, the, are just this incredibly powerful thing uh, to have enter our class. Um, there's lots of research uh, around around the kind of like cognitive capacity of stories, and actually, you know, information presented in narrative form is is more memorable, and that, you know that shouldn't surprise us. We're 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 kind of predisposed to make meaning via stories. That is, you know, in some ways, humanity. Um, and I think though that lots of the research that has started to recently come out, it, it does allow us to be quite precise with how we use storytelling in our, in our classroom. So there's, there's some interesting research by Janice Keenan and her associates where you know, they look at um, the relationship between causation and, um, and memory when it comes to, to stories. And actually it's, it's clear that stories where you have to kind of make and infer um, a cause and effect relationship are more memorable. Uh, and there's a, there's a study by Aria and Maul uh, from 2012 where two psychologists where they um they they kind of look at they present students with, with differing versions of text and one is conventional formatting and, and one is presented as narrative and the students remember that the narrative better but i think crucially within that um there's some things happening there there's a very strong central character uh, and there's an, a, a kind of a conflict and obstacle to be overcome when you take all of those things together you actually start to see that um we have quite clear purpose then with using stories in our classroom. Um, again, Willingham talks about it, that you want to include the four C's in your story because actually that's what makes them memorable. This idea of uh, character, conflict, complications uh, and causality. Um, and so I think that's quite a useful thing to, to think about. And, and then you, you tether that to the idea of core and hinterland. Actually, you start to get somewhere really interesting and you say, right, I, I want to, I want to communicate this core knowledge, but I don't want to do it via this kind of like memorization of facts. Um, instead, if appropriate, I'm, I'm going to turn it into a story, but I'm, I'm going to use these various devices to help me. I'm not just, you know, because I've told a lot of bad stories in my time um, and actually like thinking quite hard about those four C's and, 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 and using them to help write and structure your story is, is kind of a really helpful process. I think, you know, we were chatting off air about this earlier, that uh, if you are going to use stories in your classroom, um, although there are some great off-the-cuff stories you can tell, I think if you want them to be really powerful at like a curricular level, they need to be, they need to be planned out and they need to be well scripted by you, um, you know, and, and ticking the various boxes. And, and if you haven't seen, for instance, Christine Council's talk on, on storytelling for the Historical Association, I'd well you know so uh, I, i'd recommend it's well worth viewing um but yeah, i think you know certainly that that presentation some some reading that i've been doing more recently um have opened my eyes to the very like careful attention that you need to pay to crafting stories um we have these curricular objectives you know perhaps it's the communication of core knowledge perhaps it's this world building function um that doesn't mean that we just tell stories off the cuff and get away with it like, you know, it's part of lesson planning and, and it needs our attention. Definitely wonderful to note that there, that they also need careful thinking so that they do feed, as you think I mentioned, feed the core and really enhance the, the core knowledge. And yeah, exactly. Thanks for that, Josh. That was a wonderful exploration into um, some of the curriculum thinking that you've done, exploring kindly shared through your blog. Before we move into what I call my quickfire section, these are the questions that I ask every guest. Um, could you give us... 
uh, an insight into what your what would be your recommended reads or videos or talks because you've mentioned a few um for those who wanted to explore the curriculum further that they could go ahead and tap into yeah so there there's a wonderful blog series that was a bit of a light bulb moment for me um on senior curriculum leadership from christine council and i think um as someone that, that has like begun to line manage outside of my specialism i think that is really really helpful so um you know and then as actually with much of christine's work just check it out and and um there, there's so much there on offer that is incredibly useful um i i really like lots of the work that the history teacher mike hill has been doing um and would absolutely say um to anyone just because it's incredibly interesting and well written and, and he talks very eloquently about this stuff um you know for instance he's really got me thinking hard about uh, the idea of world building uh, as a curricular purpose and curricular tool um and he's got a brilliant article for that um teaching history his recent talk for the historical association about historical illustration um i found absolutely fascinating and then i would i would say two books that um are very very um but worthwhile the first is a research ed curriculum book i think as a volume it does so much um and kind of diversifies your experience in all sorts of different ways um each of the contributions is doing something very very different and i think that you know, holistically, that's, it's a really powerful little volume. Um, and then the second is, is the Ruth Ashby uh, book that I mentioned earlier, Curriculum. Um, and I think there is just so much to learn there. Uh, and there's lots of kind of learning that she's taking from legitimation code theory uh, and this idea of kind of like very, you know, like structures of knowledge, which is way too scientific for me. It goes straight over my head. But um she does a very good job of breaking it down and explaining it and gets you thinking again, if you're someone that even within or without your subject, I'm, I'm now thinking at the level of a senior leader and knowing how knowledge is structured within different subjects um, is a great thing to do. It's a great exercise for a senior leader to, to, to take because all of a sudden uh, you can start asking like, you know, really important curricular conversations, but without, um, you know, without kind of like, trying to muscle your way in on the curriculum design you can just start to ask purpose, purposeful questions you know why is this here in a vertically structured um subject you know where where you know, what needs to happen here in order to make sense of this and stuff and i think ruth's book is really helpful in that regard right thank you so much and before we move last thing before we move into the quick fair section can you please signpost where listeners can um, engage with you on, on social media and also can you please signpost your blog yeah, of course. Uh, my my Twitter handle is Valence Teach, um, and my blog is Mister Valence Teach. So nice and easy. Nice and easy. Thank you so much. So we're now going to move on to the final section, which is my quick fire round. I've got three questions for you, um, quite broad in scope, but I want you to shoot from the hip. Um, nice, short, really what you think of, of each of each question. Are you ready for that? Got it. Yeah, let's do it. Number one, um, what makes great teaching for you? Relationship with, with the subject. Um, that's, is that too short? I don't know. No, want to expand on that. You're more than welcome. Well, I think teachers who are really engaged with their subject and have a close relationship with their subject in the academic discipline, I think invariably um, become really wonderful teachers. I'd also add to that, you know, care, 
and, and, and enthusiasm and joy for what you're doing because actually you're doing a really cool job. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, question number two is what one thing would you prioritise to bring about great teaching in every classroom? Time. Um, I think if you afford teachers time um, and, and um, we're clear about how that time can best be used and, and, and that involves like a kind of like degree of non-invasiveness from senior leaders, um, then I think we will see teachers uh, begin to do, as I've said, or, or, you know, lots do, but simply don't have time to do it as much as they like to begin to engage with their subject at a really critical level. And, and I think that that's something that needs time and requires time. And uh, like as a system and institution structure, we need to find a way to give teachers more time. Definitely. I definitely echo that. Thank you very much. And the final question, number three, is if you could change just one thing in education, what would that be? Well, maybe I've just had it there. Um, yeah, I, it's a great question. I think, again, I'd, I'd come back to this idea of, of time and a kind of value in the profession. And maybe that's not something that, that, that like can change, really. Um, but from a personal experience, I've, I've benefited hugely uh, from, from kind of accessing my subject community and engaging with my subject community. And it's totally transformed my relationship with teaching. Um, and I think if we can create a system that allows that to happen very easily and not just for like kind of those of us that, that want to spend our weekends on Twitter chatting with each other about the latest like, bit of history we've read, if you can create a system which kind of incorporates that into part of the, the daily fabric of a school I think that would be incredibly exciting it certainly certainly would and what a wonderful wonderful thing to close on so brings me to say thank you so so much for giving me your time on this Thursday evening to not at all Darren some of these topics with you Josh it's been an absolute pleasure yeah absolute pleasure thanks very much mate thanks for listening to this episode of Becoming Educate as ever I would be delighted to hear your thoughts and you can contact me via Twitter at DNLesley or via email. So that you don't miss out, I urge you to subscribe to the podcast. And while I have your attention, why not submit a review of the podcast wherever you get yours from so that many, many others can access Become an Educator. I'll be back next week with another episode of Become an Educator and I do hope to see you there.